Hello and welcome. You're listening to Shopology on Edge Radio. I'm Dr Louise Grimmer from the Tasmanian School of Business and Economics at the University of Tasmania. Each week on the show, we dive into the world of retailing, marketing and consumer behaviour. On this week's show, we take a look at how we can support local retailers and hospitality businesses by changing the way we use our streets. My special guest this week is Tami Cruiser, an urban planner at RMIT University. Tami recently wrote an article published on the Conversation website proposing four ideas that use street space in different ways, which might just help our struggling retail and hospitality sectors as restrictions start to lift. Also on this week's show, private label products. Do you love them or do you loathe them? However you feel about them, there's no doubt you can expect to see more of them in your local supermarket. I'll take a look at the reasons behind the growth of private labels and some of the benefits and downsides of private label expansion in the Australian retail industry. But first, let's take a look at what's making news headlines in the retail world. Making retail headlines this week, Australia slips into recession as figures show retail spending plummeted during April. Just as the Federal Treasurer Josh Frydenberg announced Australia was in its first recession since 1991, the Australian Bureau of Statistics released retail trade figures for April, which showed sales fell by 17.7%. As reported in the New Daily, the fall in April came after retail sales rose by a record 8.5% in March as households stockpiled goods. Lockdown measures caused a big shift in spending patterns in April, with online sales soaring 26% to $2.7 billion. The shift to online during the pandemic lockdown has been significant, with online sales making up 11% of total retail sales in April. By way of comparison, in April last year, online sales were just 5.7% of total sales. In April, the losers were cafes, restaurants and takeaway food services, with record falls showing sales down by 35%. Clothing, footwear and personal accessory sales were down by 53%, and there was a large fall in department store retailing, down 15%. And things are looking very different for retailers in airports around the country. In fact, Guardian Australia has labelled airports as retail ghost towns. Elias Vizonte, writing in Guardian Australia, says that the future for Australian retail stores in airports is uncertain, with the pandemic lockdown restrictions affecting every sector of the Australian retail industry, especially those once busy airport stores. As an example, he cites the Amcal Pharmacy, located in the International Terminal at Sydney Airport. This store usually serves around 800 customers a day, but it's now seeing as few as 40 people coming through its doors. Sydney Airport recorded a drop of 98% of passengers in the month up to mid-May, compared with the same period last year, from roughly 123,000 passengers across international and domestic airports a day to about 3,000. In response to the plummeting foot traffic, Sydney Airport has offered rental deferral and rental holidays to retail businesses. Paul Zara, chief executive of the Australian Retailers Association, told The Guardian businesses based in airports have been hit by a double-edged sword. There's no doubt airport retailers have been the hardest hit. Many have chosen not to open. And some airport shops have even been forced to open pop-up stores in cities to continue trading. Heinemann, the well-known duty-free store, is running a pop-up in Wallara in Sydney in order to help it shift stock which is set to expire. 
In other news, Harvey Norman has reported strong sales results, at least in Australia. Inside Retail reports global furniture giant Harvey Norman's second-half sales reflect the economic impact of different governments' attempts to stop the spread of COVID-19. In Australia, where Harvey Norman franchisees were allowed to keep their stores open as long as they complied with social distancing requirements, sales were up 17.5% in the second half to the end of May, compared with the same period last year. But in New Zealand, Northern Ireland, Slovenia and Croatia, where the retailer operates wholly owned company stores, and in Malaysia and Singapore, where it operates majority-owned and controlled company stores, sales were down across the board. The trading update released yesterday also underlines the boom or bust nature of the global pandemic for retail. While fashion and other discretionary categories suffered from concern over job losses and the tanking economy, supermarkets, office supply stores, furniture and homewares retailers and businesses selling books, puzzles and games saw record months as millions of people went into self-isolation and started working from home. And finally, if you purchased some new office furniture or DIY goods during lockdown, you've likely contributed to strong results for Wes Farmers. Inside Retail reports Wes Farmers, which has Officeworks and Bunnings in its retail portfolio, announced that both businesses have seen sales growth jump during the second half to date. Bunnings sales grew by 19.2% and Officeworks by a whopping 27.8%. The massive jump in sales was attributed to the impacts of lockdown, meaning more people were working, learning and relaxing at home. Wes Farmers has acknowledged the impact of lockdown on consumer behaviour and because of this they've noted it's uncertain if the higher levels of sales growth will continue through the remainder of the year as we emerge out of lockdown restrictions. Another of Wes Farmers brands, the online-only Catch Group, saw sales growth of 68.7% during the second half and Kmart and Target also saw increases in sales momentum as shoppers returned to shopping centres. And that's all for this week's Retail News. I'm Louise Grimmer and you're listening to Shopology on Edge Radio 99.3 and online at edgeradio.org.au. With lockdown restrictions lifting around the country, many of us are heading back out to eat, drink and enjoy socialising with friends and family. Thanks to COVID-19, our local bars, cafes and restaurants now face a really tough ask. They can open their doors, but only for a fraction of the customers. This seems like an impossible task, but my next guest has some really interesting ideas for how traders can find new ways to seat their patrons. Tami Kruser is an urban planner and spatial analyst in the Centre for Urban Research at RMIT University. He's a specialist in urban greening. He works on greening projects and on providing policy for Melbourne's most urbanised spaces. Tami is currently part of an international project team advising the European Union on planning for urban greening. Over the next three years, he will facilitate the development of greening plans for eight cities around the world. But today, he's our special guest on Shopology. He's here to talk about four ways that street space can help the retail and hospitality industries meet some of the reopening challenges brought about by the easing of lockdown restrictions. 
and I spoke to him earlier via telephone. You've written a brilliant piece in the conversation about how we can use our streets to help rescue restaurants, bars and cafes as we all come out of lockdown. Before we look at these solutions, what's the current situation with regard to some of the limitations in hospitality venues? What restrictions are traders faced with at the moment? Well, the magic number here in Melbourne is four, because that's uh, how many square metres you get per customer. So my understanding is the rule is uh, you get four square metres per per customer, or um, for each room that you've got, you can have up to 20 people. And that seems to be the rule for the next three weeks at least. Um, if you think about what that might mean for small bars, the, the four square metres seems to be holding um, into the future. And if I've got a small bar that's 40 square metres, and that's quite common in a place like Melbourne, um, that might mean just 10 customers. So that's a that's a real threat to, to actually keeping this open and being able to employ staff in these venues. That's a really big problem, isn't it? The limited number of patrons that these venues can house um, in order to, to keep those social distancing rules in place. So let's have a look at some of the solutions that you've come up with to help with these problems. And there are four that you've outlined in um, in your terrific conversation article. Let's have a look at the first one. So the first one is moving dining outside onto the footpath. What are some of the benefits that this would bring well, in Melbourne, we, you know, in the 90s went from very little cafe dining and a lot of cars on the streets to now we've got about 350 on-street dining permits. That's just in the city of Melbourne. So that's the centre of our city. And it, it brings a lot of life to the streets um, generally. But, you know, those are the people that have gone through a long formal process. What we see under the coronavirus scenario is that for that, say, that small bar that I, that, that I just talked about, um, where maybe they can have 10 patrons inside. If, if they can even just have an extra three tables outside on the footpath, that might be another six to 12 customers. So that could be a doubling of our business or maybe even just a 50% increase. But that could be the difference between survival and, you know, shutting shop. How hard is it for venues that are not already doing this and what could be done to make it easier to transition to, uh, to footpath dining? I think the focus at the moment um, has been on making sure that we don't uh, create any risks or nuisances on our footpaths. And I think that's reasonable, but it, it has got to the point now that the checklists are quite a few pages long, there's elaborate forms, and the assessment process has a very long turnaround. So um, while maybe that was somewhat legitimate in, in a normal business environment, in this environment where people need to be able to move quickly, to actually shore up their businesses, um, the, those delays start becoming really pro- problematic. Um, so what, what I've proposed is that instead of having the full checkbox process, long assessment, we actually instead um, use a regulatory approach that, that still should cover the essentials but puts a bit more trust on businesses. So. Instead of requiring a permit, um, what we could do, and this is done in other parts of regulation, is say things are permitted by default, provided uh, uh, street dining meets a few basic requirements. And the one that is most important uh, to look after, for example, for businesses, is just to make sure that whatever you put out on the street, there's still at least you know one and a half or two meters walkway so that someone in a wheelchair can get past and customers, just, just normal people walking on the street aren't squeezed by one's business. 
And this would obviously bring great benefits to local businesses, but what are some of the broader benefits it brings to local communities? I suppose keeping hospitality jobs would be fantastic. Um, having dining on the street also means that, for example, if you're walking down uh, the street in the evening, uh, there's actually eyes out on the street and you're not necessarily just walking alone in the darkness. Um, but the thing that Melbourne has got so much from uh, and benefited so much from, from this kind of outdoor cafe dining is, is character. You know, we really uh, have streets that are a delight to walk down because of this cafe dining culture. And, it, you know, it's not just here. We're, a lot of us, when we visit Europe, it's that's the kind of thing we want to see in our European cities on our holidays. The second really creative and interesting solution is something called a parklet. For those who are not familiar with the parklet, Tami, tell us what it is. Well, parklet, it sounds like when two parks love each other very much, they make a parklet. <laughs> um, a parklet is actually just a, a very compact little park, but it doesn't necessarily always look like a park because what, what it's made of is a parking space. Um, often it's one parking space or two, and once you've taken that, those two together, uh, you, you get a space that's big enough that you can actually have a little seating area. Uh, you can put out tables. You can have a couple of trees. Um, in some cases, people even put a, a little bit of public art in these spaces, and they're not that hard to adapt. Uh, so, you know, your business might have one parking space, and particularly in this corona environment, a parklet could be as simple as putting out three or four tables in that parking space. And what that means is um, instead of having one car that comes, parks in front of your business and maybe comes in with one or two customers, um, you, you could instead have six customers able to sit outside. And there's an interesting story about how parklets were actually created. Tell us how they came to be. Yeah, so San Francisco is the real, you know, home of the parklet. And the story of how they came about, I think it was 2005, um, a couple of people who saw this potential uh, initiated something called Parking Day. And Parking Day is sort of park and then with the ing in parentheses or brackets. And the idea is that parking can be a park. So they found out that uh, provided you've paid the meter on your on your parking you can do with that parking space what you want. So they came along with a whole bunch of coins. They filled up the parking meter and um, they rolled out astrogus. So it's a nice fake grass to sit on. They put uh, a park bench in the middle of the parking space and they brought a couple of potted trees and they just watched it to see what would happen. And amazingly, within about five minutes, someone came and started eating their lunch on the bench. Someone else came and... Uh, leaned against the tree and, and relaxed and looked at the street. And they realized they'd got onto something there. So Parking Day has been rolling ever since. And um, now it's an international event. And I, I think what's most exciting about it is it's shown that these temporary days where you just do the parklet just for a day, pop it up, um, often help people experience what could, what, what could be there longer term. And... When people make that connection, you start seeing more permanent parklets. And now we've got an incredible situation in San Francisco where they've actually got 50 different parklets. And those are not temporary things at all. They are really beautiful, well-made little uh, open spaces for, for the public. 
if you if you Google parklets, um, you'll find some incredible examples from right around the world. Where in Australia can we find some good examples of parklets? Well, for my money, if, if I was to go to one city, I'd go to Adelaide, where I think they've got six or seven. Now, they, they don't, their parklet program isn't active anymore. I'm not sure why, but um, there are cities that are experimenting with them actively. So Perth has put out two or three that are really nice. Um, apparently, there's a very pretty one in Fremantle. Here in Melbourne, we've got uh, a couple of, of sort of early pioneering parklets. Some, a lot of them just look like cafe seating. Um, there's one that's come up very recently that's actually been associated with our um, underground railway development. So near one of the, the stations, they've, they've helped a business put seating out in one of the parking spaces. Um, but, you know, Sydney, there's been a little bit of experimentation. Haven't heard much from Brisbane, but everywhere someone has at least given it a go. And Australian cities do participate in parking days. So we've seen great temporary parking uh, parklets uh, around the country, but it's it's not catching on just yet. So uh, everywhere you, every city you go, you can probably find one example, but the potential is is still vastly uh, underappreciated. So this might be something else that we could look at trialling at the moment, and perhaps getting local councils to, um, I guess, relax some of the the paperwork or the restrictions on using this kind of space in the front of local businesses. Tommy, let's talk now about road closures. This is your third idea for getting the streets to really work for us. These sorts of proposals often scare local traders, but they can be really successful. What are some examples where this works really well? Well, um, Melbourne's, Melbourne's actually been really successful with, with road closures, and that's because they do it in a couple of ways. So um, you have your permanent road closures like Burke Street Mall and most cities have one or two really big central you know, retail strips that are pedestrianised and those, those do very well. But um, something that helps boost our business here uh, and doesn't cause a lot of disruption is, is something called an intermittent road closure. So some of our most iconic dining streets actually, uh, where, where you do sit in the road, are open for traffic for part of the day. So DeGrave Street, where many, many non-Melbournians have likely visited, a lot of people don't know that I think it's about 9 p.m. DeGrave Street opens to traffic and that's so that um, garbage trucks can actually get in and out and, and service all the restaurants around there. Um, so once you start looking past permanent closures, you, you, you get a whole lot of new opportunities um, in areas that don't need vehicle access all the time. It's a really uh, a different way of thinking about road closures. If we think that they can be temporary, um, whether that's uh, one day a week or half a day a week, or even, as you say, um, even for certain hours during the day that the roads are closed. We certainly see that with uh, markets down here in Tasmania, where I live. That's another great solution. And then finally, the last solution is using empty parking lots by converting them into giant dining areas. Where did this idea originate? Well, um, the idea first struck me when I was in Copenhagen. So uh, in Copenhagen, there's there's an old area called the Meatpacking District um, with an unpronounceable Danish name. And they, they, they have this incredible sort of big square of um, white buildings where you used to be able to go and buy a fridge or a washing machine or... Yeah, buy your meat. And that's all transformed over the years. And now it's lined with restaurants and bars. Some of them are really quite high-end. Some are much more accessible. 
galleries, uh, the whole thing. And of course, Denmark being quite chilly, uh, it isn't always that the car park is full. But the moment um, the sun comes out, people bring out chairs and tables. It's all very lightweight and improvised. And people just slide into the central car park and it becomes this sort of huge dining area. And um, it's very quick. It's very adaptable. Sometimes someone will do something like drag a piano into the middle of it. Um, but then, you know, when, when it's not needed, it does still function as a car park. Um, and I've been, I've been pleased to see that here in Melbourne, just the other day, I was walking down the street and there was a car park. And it had people filling it up. And I walked over and there it was, food trucks all, the, all around the edge of it. So um, the car park concept is, is pretty simple. But um, it, it seems to really get the space buzzing when people are there and the sun's out. It seems like such a, a more creative and enjoyable way to, to use that car parking space. Well, look, Tommy, all the ideas we've discussed, they just seem so sensible when you break them down and look at what's worked well in places around the world and even starting to take off here in Australia. Is this a good time for us to be thinking about trying to be more creative and perhaps introducing more unusual ideas to support local businesses? This is the best possible time, Louise. Um, Coronavirus is really putting jobs at risk, but it's also changing how we look at cities. And we see all over the world, cities are adapting their streets. You know, big cities like Paris and London are closing whole streets and just just having cycling lanes on those, and they're getting used. Um, we are seeing new open spaces being made in some cities. We, we are already seeing roads being closed and restaurants spilling out into the streets. Um, so this is a, a rare time where we're actually thinking about how to do cities a bit differently, and that's partly because a lot of us have been working from home for a long time. I think a lot of us are probably going to stay working from home for a long time, so traffic just isn't what it used to be. So the opportunities out there, and um, the, there's, there's a couple of really interesting points here. Firstly, all of these approaches are proven. They work really well. We've seen them work well. Some of them can be a bit scary, but what's, what's very nice is... Uh, this coronavirus period is, is a time where we can experiment and do things temporarily. So we don't have to commit permanently to doing this stuff. We can trial it for three months while the city comes back, save a whole lot of jobs in the process and keep what works well. Um, and if we do that, we're not leading the world by any measure. People are already doing this stuff. We would, in fact, just be following a whole lot of it, uh, set examples that, that are happening ahead of us. So I reckon this is the perfect time. Tommy, it's been absolutely wonderful to chat with you today. Such an inspiration. Thanks so much for joining me on Shopology. Many thanks to you too, Louise. Pleasure. And that was my special guest this week on Shopology, Tommy Cruiser, an urban planner at RMIT University. You can read his article, Four Ways Our Streets Can Rescue Restaurants, Bars and Cafes After Coronavirus. It was published on The Conversation website and available at theconversation.com. Private label products. You might love them. You might loathe them. However you feel about them, though, private label products are taking over the supermarket shelves in your local grocery store. So first things first, what is a private label product? A private label product is made by a contract or a third-party manufacturer and sold under a retailer's brand name. 
the retailer gets to specify everything about the product, from what goes in it to how it's packaged and what the labelling looks like. And then they pay to have it produced and delivered to their store. A little while ago, Professor Gary Mortimer from QUT and I wrote an article for The Conversation about the rise of private label products in the Australian retail industry. And this is what we found. In Australia, private label products account for about 18% of all retail dollar sales. This is significantly less than supermarkets in other countries. Private label products account for about 41% of supermarket sales in the United Kingdom. 42% in Spain, 36% in Germany and about 32% in most other European countries. So why are we seeing more and more private label products? In one study, 85% of retailers surveyed said that improved margins was the main reason for investing in private label products. And that's because a private label product with features and quality parity with national brands may cost retailers 40 to 50% less to manufacture and distribute to their customers. In fact, in some American convenience stores, gross margins can be found of up to 72% on things like private label bottled water, and that compares with about 45% on branded alternatives. Overall, supermarkets see about an 8-10% to premium on margins for private label products over branded ones. Another reason that we're seeing more and more private labels is that they help retailers differentiate themselves from the competition. It gives them unique products that can only be found in their stores. And we're seeing private labels pop up across the retail sector. We see them in discount department stores, so in Target and Kmart, for example, liquor stores, convenience stores, and even in traditional full-line department stores like Maya. There are some downsides, though, to the expansion of private labels. The main fears about the continued growth of private label brands are that it could discourage suppliers from innovating with their products, jeopardise the livelihoods of smaller, independent suppliers, and ultimately result in less choice for consumers. Some researchers have even suggested that increasing private label ranges could impede innovation in the food industry. This is largely because branded manufacturers will have less incentive to invest in new products, only to then have them copied by the contract manufacturers who produce private label goods. Smaller, local independent brand manufacturers and wholesalers could be exposed to delisting. This is where a supermarket doesn't renew a supply contract in order to free up shelf space for its own private label alternatives. There are positives for consumers. Consumers are currently benefiting from increased competition. Progressively higher quality private label products are available at much lower prices than branded products. If we think about supermarket shopping, it's notoriously a low involvement, mundane and habitual task for many people. Shoppers often visit the same supermarkets, they buy the same products every week, they even browse the same aisles. In fact, studies continue to demonstrate that the abundance of choice is problematic for many shoppers who simply want an optimal choice, they want things to be simple. Research shows that when faced with a good, better and best option, people usually choose the one in the middle. This is why we see supermarkets now offering very basic generic private label products all the way through to select and finest options. So a really successful private label strategy for retailers hinges on being able to leverage those perceptions of both price and value. 
private label products are becoming a key weapon for Coles and Woolworths as they strive to compete against international supermarket chains that have entered the Australian industry, Audi and Kaufland, who really appeal to those price-sensitive customers. Coles is aiming to have private label products make up 40% of its product range over the next five years. This increase will apply across multiple tiers of Coles products with a focus on quality, innovation and new strategic global relationships. So however you feel about private label products, there's no doubt you're going to start seeing more of them on your local supermarket shelves. You've been listening to Shopology and that's all for this week's show. I'm Dr Louise Grimmer. Thanks so much for your company. You can follow the show on Twitter at Shopology Show and you can follow me at Louise Grimmer. Be sure to catch next week's show. You can listen live every Thursday at 5 o'clock on Edge Radio 99.3 or online at edgeradio.org.au and you can listen to each episode of Shopology as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review the show. This really helps other people find us. Till next time, take care. Wow.